You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Appreciate you all coming uh, to, uh, to Summit Church today. Um, even, uh, even though we don't have power, I know it's kind of a, it's pretty insignificant, um, I guess, uh, inconvenience, but uh, we appreciate you coming out anyways. Uh, if you don't know, we have been going through a sermon series on, uh, on the fruit of the spirit. Um, and uh, so I just like to start us off with uh, Galatians 5, 22 uh, through 25, and it should be on the screen, uh, just the one. Uh, and uh, so we'll just read that uh, and kind of uh, kick us off with our disclaimers. If you know anything about how I preach, I always start off with like a whole list of disclaimers. So <laughs> Galatians 5, 22, uh, we'll take it through 25. Uh, so uh, it says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the spirit, let's follow the spirit as well. And so uh, up until this point, we've already done uh, love, joy, peace, patience, uh, and kindness. And this week we are on goodness. Uh, and if you're interested, all those other sermons are on our, uh, on our website. Uh, so you can listen to those. And uh, they don't necessarily build on each other, but uh, in this particular instance, uh, kindness, or at least the Greek word kindness uh, and, uh, and goodness, they do kind of run very similar. So um, I'm not gonna go back through everything that I talked about last week, uh, but I will kind of just remind everyone uh, some of this um, important information. Um, but before we get into the difference between uh, the Greek word for kindness and goodness, uh, I would like to just kind of reiterate everything that we've been talking about. And we've just been beating this drum over and over throughout this entire sermon series so far. And we're going to continue to do so. And that is uh, that this is uh, aptly named this list, these list of virtues, uh, the fruit of the spirit. It's a very normal and human reaction to see a list in the Bible, especially a list of virtues, and for you to be like, oh, sweet, now I can see what kind of, uh, how I measure up, right? Or we can look at this and we can compare ourselves to say other Christians, or we have now some objective standard to say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm holy or I'm doing pretty good. And this is, this is a very normal thing. It's a very human thing for us to, to look at a list and say, cool, now I, have, I know what I can work on. I know what I don't need to work on because I got, I got love pretty nailed down, but kindness, oh, I might need to work on that. And that's a very normal human reaction. But let's just keep this in mind. This is fruit of the spirit, not fruit of you, right? This is not something that we, just, we, we kind of produce in ourselves. This is actually something that the spirit produces in us. And again, we, we've been beating this drum and we're going to continue to beat this drum is that this is not some list in which we can kind of prove our salvation or work our salvation, or we can white knuckle our sanctification where it's just like, oh, I just need to work harder to, I don't know, be good, whatever that might mean, right? And that, that's the whole point actually of the fruit of the spirit is Paul's giving us this list to show us, uh, hey, do you struggle with these? And if you're really honest, you should be able to say, yeah, I actually do struggle with these. And that should draw us closer to the cross, right? And not deeper into our flesh, which never produced any of these in the first place. So when we find ourselves lacking in say kindness, and I talked about that last week, that's definitely a issue in my life um, where I, I've come to realize, wow, kindness, I'm really lacking in this area. 
But what this doesn't drive me to do is just try harder to be kind. What this does is it drives me on my knees before the cross and I beg Christ, please produce this in me. And so, like I said, I wanna make sure that this is very clear. These fruit of the spirit, all these fruit of the spirit, especially goodness is a fruit of the spirit, not a fruit of you. And if we find ourselves lacking in this area, we, go, we run to Christ and we beg him, please give us more Christ, more spirit. Uh, because Paul even says in verse 24, now those who belong to Christ crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's dead. Whatever flesh you think, whatever fruit you think you're gonna produce out of the flesh, it's dead. Leave it, it's gone. Because in verse 25, we live by the spirit and now let's follow the spirit as well. So what we've been doing uh, is, uh, at least me specifically, I, I really want to, uh, I want to look at these, these fruit because if these fruit are from the spirit and the spirit is God, then how can we know what these fruit actually look like uh, the most clearly? Uh, and that's to see how God demonstrates these fruit himself. Now, are we gonna demonstrate the fruit in the same way that God is? No, absolutely not. We're still broken humans, right? However, we can get our fingers around or we can really understand the goodness uh, that God demonstrates. Then we can actually translate it to us uh, and how it does manifest in our lives. So uh, with that in mind, uh, we are gonna be uh, spending um, the rest of our series or the rest of our um, time today in Romans 8. And that's Romans 8, 18. Now, um, this, uh, it's a long passage. We're, we're doing almost half of the chapter of Romans 8. Uh, now, this is where the disclaimers start. Uh, Romans 8, we could do a whole sermon series on just Romans 8, if you know anything about Romans 8. Um, so if it feels like I'm glossing over stuff or I'm skipping stuff, or you're just like, wow, that was a big point. Why isn't he talking about that? It's because I don't have time, right? Um, so if it feels that way, I absolutely am skipping stuff, uh, but bear with me. Uh, and it is a very large chunk of text. Um, but, uh, but again, if you know anything about at least me and Ovi, uh, this is how we prefer to, to, to preach. Uh, we're not really big fans of jumping around and, and pulling text from other stuff. We will do that when, uh, when necessary. However, we really like to find a home and a big chunk of text and go verse by verse. So um, I'm gonna read this text and then we're gonna pray uh, that God speaks to his church through his word. Uh, and then we'll start uh, digging into uh, the nuance of the text. So again, that's Romans 8, 18. And we'll just take it all the way through the end of the chapter. So it says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only that, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what they already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, through perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Now in the same way, the spirit also helps our weakness. 
For we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He will bring char- who will bring charges against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, but rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or trouble or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you uh, for this body of believers. Um, and I just ask that you continue to, uh, to build your church and... Um, and that you just remove any kind of uh, illusion uh, that we have that we're, uh, that we're building this thing or that we're, we're doing anything that, uh, that you couldn't do uh, yourself. And I ask that you just keep us focused on Christ and keep us focused on the fact that, uh, that we do nothing without you. And we love you and we thank you for everything that you've given to us. And I ask that you just encourage your church uh, with your word. And... Uh, I thank you again. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, uh, like I said, this is a, it's a very large uh, chunk of text. And, uh, and if you were paying attention, uh, you probably noticed that the word goodness uh, didn't show up too often. <laughs> it was actually only showed up once. Uh, and, uh, and there's a good reason for that, right? Trust me, uh, we'll, we'll get there. Uh, and why, why we chose this passage. Um, also, disclaimer, um, really the biggest reason why I chose this passage is, uh, is it absolutely the whole passage really talks about the goodness of God, um, but also better yet, um, it really kind of preaches itself. And that's really the sweet spot. Uh, if, uh, if we can let the, the text speak for itself uh, and me speak less, that's, that's really kind of the sweet spot. So um, we're going to, like I said, dig into this. Um, there's a lot of stuff that we're gonna unfortunately have to skip over, but... Uh, something that I would like us to, uh, to just keep in mind, uh, there's going to be three points uh, that we're going to be looking at. And so uh, the, uh, the three points is that God's goodness toward us does three things. God's goodness toward us does three things. It does a lot more, but again, for time, we're going to reduce it down to three. 
God's goodness toward us conforms us to the image of Christ. It strengthens our hope and it produces assurance. And again, that's God's goodness toward us. It conforms us to the image of Christ. It strengthens our hope and it produces assurance. Now, uh, the, uh, I told you that the, uh, in the fruit of the spirit, the word kindness and goodness, uh, they do kind of run uh, in parallel sometimes. Sometimes that Greek word goodness is actually translated as good, right? Uh, sometimes it's translated as merciful. Sometimes it's comfortable. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's yada, 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 okay? So it really does beg the question, if sometimes it's translated as good, why would Paul put goodness and goodness right next to each other. They are technically two different Greek words, but if they are so similar, why would he do that? Uh, the important thing to remember, and again, I'm not gonna re-preach last week's sermon. So if you are curious, more information uh, that is online. Uh, but that word kindness, it can be translated easily into a lot of different uh, situations or contexts because uh, it's really this outward expression of someone's love or affection for someone else. It's something that's useful and it makes someone uh, kind of feel easy or at home or comfortable. Um, and this is why, uh, for example, if you love someone, you could have a deep love and affection for someone, but if you don't demonstrate it to them, uh, what good is that? And that's kind of where kindness comes in. It's this useful uh, outward expression of it. However, this week we're talking about goodness and goodness is only translated as goodness. It's always translated as goodness. And that's where this is very different from, the, from last week. So goodness, what I want us to think, generally speaking, uh, is goodness is almost always going to uh, be ascribed to some kind of moral character or some kind of moral excellence. And so when Paul says that the, the spirit produces goodness in us, I want us to think that is moral excellence that he's producing in us. But again, we see this most clearly in the person and work of God and how he deals with us. And that's why we're in Romans 8. And we're specifically going to focus on Romans 8, 28 um, on this first point. And so uh, Romans 8, 28, and again, our first point is that God's goodness toward us conforms us into the image of Christ. I've heard this passage taken out of context many times. And, uh, and again, this is kind of the crux of the, uh, of the passage. Uh, and I'll kind of work this out, but really everything before this passage leads up to uh, this verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. And that's the same word for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. So everything prior to this passage, it leads up to this statement. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called. And then everything after this verse, it kind of builds off of this. And, and Paul does this a lot where he, he, makes a, he, he poses a premise and then he builds on that premise and then he comes to a conclusion later. And this, this is the premise. This is the base of his argument. This is, this is all he's talking about is all things work together for the good of those who love him and for those who are called. And so really this whole passage, it kind of it hinges on, or this idea that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. This, is, this statement is kind of the linchpin to his whole argument. If this wasn't here, then Paul's argument would be mostly incoherent. And that's why we're in this passage today, is I want us to get, really get our fingers around, what does it look like when God demonstrated his goodness toward us? And also just Let's, let's set aside the, the whole idea that uh, God's moral excellence, God is moral excellence, right? 
Uh, we, we as Christians, we believe that any kind of morality only exists because God imbued it inside of us. So this idea of God demonstrating his moral excellence, uh, it's pretty easy for him to do. He is moral excellence. He is the ultimate uh, morality. And so what does this look like when God causes all things to work together for those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose? Paul goes on to explain this. He explains what's going on. And it says, and for those he, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now, a lot of times uh, we've, uh, we read this passage or I've heard people interpret this passage, uh, when, especially when they're going through a hard time and they're just like, don't worry, God's got a plan, right? He's working this out for good, right? Um, and that's very true. And that's, that's exactly the context too. I don't want you to think that that's an incorrect interpretation of this. If you think about, and this is why we, I read a lot prior to this passage, is Paul starts off with, it doesn't even count the sufferings that we experience now. It doesn't even count when you compare it to the glory that's coming. And then he talks about the sufferings of even creation. Even creation is suffering. And then he talks about how we're groaning inside of ourselves. We're desperate for adoption. And then he talks about how God works all things together for our good. And then he ends with this, oh yeah, we were like sheep led to the slaughter. And then all the things that he lists that we're going to, over, we're going to conquer are all sufferings. This whole passage is couched in suffering. So it would be completely inappropriate for us to look at this passage and say, see, God works all these things so that we can be more comfortable or that we can, how does Joel Osteen put it? Um, live our best life now, right? It'd just be completely inappropriate to read that into this passage. At no point in any of this passage is God indicating anything about your comfort. He's not talking about your comfort. He's not talking about your temporary happiness. Joy is absolutely in here, but temporary happiness is just not in this passage. This passage starts and ends with suffering. And so here he says that all things work together for our good. What good? Not your comfort, not our happiness, but what? What is the good? And it says to be conformed into the image of his son. That's the good. Now, I don't know about you, and maybe this is just a me thing, but there's been so many times where you experience some kind of tragedy or something awful happens, um, maybe not even to you, but something that happens to a loved one, and, and you're, you're just, you're really faithful to like, no, 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 God's doing this for a good reason. He's, he's got a plan, right? He's doing this for our good. We just don't know what it is yet. And then you get on the other side of it and you're just like, what, what was it? What was good about that? And you're just like, well, maybe he'll reveal it later. And then just like 10 years later, you look back and you're just like, I still don't see it. What was good about that? I, I, there's, there's like a whole list that I have and I don't know why I just don't let the list go, but there's a whole list of things that I look back in my life where I'm just like, what good was that? Or even a better question is all the, that was awful stuff. And maybe there was some good that come out, came out of some of that. I could see some of the goodness, but holy smokes, couldn't you do that without the bad? Like, God, like what, you're, you're supposed to be all powerful. Why can't you just do the good? Did we have to go through all the bad to get that little good that wasn't even close to proportionate to the evil? And it really does, it just, it kind of, it irks me when I think back on it. And, and like I said, maybe it's just a me thing, but I feel like we all kind of experience this if we're honest with ourselves. 
Sometimes we look back and we're just like, what good is coming out of this? And I think the fact that, at least me specifically, is why I wrestle with this is because I, I totally miss the whole point of being conformed into the image of his son. That's the good. All things are being worked together for the good of being conformed into the image of his son. Again, this is not some kind of comfort. This is not some kind of, uh, oh, I just need to learn this lesson so that I don't get beat up next time. Next time God feels like he needs to discipline me. This isn't any of that. What this passage is talking about, what Paul is getting at is that all things work together for the good or rather for the being conformed into the image of his son. And we can say that, but what does that mean, being conformed to the image of his son? It's like, do we just, I don't know, become homeless and wander around Galilee uh, performing miracles, just like Jesus? What does that look like? And he goes on to explain, so that, in verse 29 at the end, so that he would be, Christ would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. This is the goal is that we get conformed into the image of his son so that we actually participate in this new creation. We get remade into something that kind of looks like sons of disobedience or sons of wrath, like Paul talks about in Ephesians. And we get remade or recreated into something that looks like the son of God, something that looks like a spiritual little brother and little sister of Christ himself. And if we go to the previous text, if we back up to verse 19, uh, it even, uh, Paul even talks about this, he sets this up. Verse 19, it says, for the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So what is this talking about? Is creation even groaning? And we talked about this a little bit last week. And again, I'm not gonna go through that whole thing again. But if you go back to the cursing of Adam and, uh, Adam and Eve, right? So uh, God asks Adam what happened. Adam blames a woman, the woman blames a serpent, and then God curses a serpent, and then he curses the woman. So in reverse order, then it gets to Adam. And what does God do? He curses the ground, Right? And Adam's not getting, getting off scot-free because at the end of his curse, God reminds him, oh, by the way, remember Adam, you came from the dust and you will return to the dust because you are dust. So when God curses the dust, Adam quite literally by his nature, his very sustenance is cursed. But worse yet, it's everything he touches and everything around him is also cursed. And so we, we, this is exactly what Paul is talking about. And if we remember prior to the fall in Genesis, prior to the fall, God creates Adam and Eve, and then he sets up Adam and Eve as his kind of regents, right? So wherever Adam and Eve went, so did God's reign or his authority. So God subjects creation to Adam, and then when Adam breaks, creation breaks. And it was almost as if it was subjected to futility, not willingly, and so we see this idea that, that all of creation is broken and that's actually our fault. 
I've, I've heard this, uh, this argued, and if you know anything about the problem of evil or the problem of suffering, a very common rebuke or criticism of Christianity uh, is that why would evil exist? And if you can't even just blame God's or people's bad moral characters, right? Because sometimes hurricanes just kill people and you can't blame humans for that. Actually, we can. Actually, according to Romans 8, that is our fault. It's because when God subjected creation to mankind and then mankind broke, creation broke. So what is creation longing for? It's for mankind to be redeemed. So if Adam broke and creation broke, then when Adam is redeemed, when mankind is redeemed, so is all of creation. And creation eagerly waits for what? The revealing of the sons and daughters of God. Creation's waiting for us. It's waiting for our glorification. It's waiting for our redemption. And even says that creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And it says that, that all the whole creation groans with the sufferings, uh, suffering and, uh, and pains of childbirth. So what does it mean to be shaped into the image of Christ? God's goodness, what it does is it conforms us into the image of Christ. What does that mean? It means it shapes you into a son and a daughter of God. What God's goodness toward us does is it offers us adoption. And so we too get to participate in everything that Christ inherited. Now, this is an important point. Because a lot of people say, yes, we are co-heirs with Christ. We inherit what Christ inherits, right? We are sons and daughters of the King, so we should act like it, right? We should be comfortable. We should be rich. We should be, uh, have whatever we want, just like uh, sons and daughters of Kings. But let's take a moment and think about what Christ did inherit. On this side of the resurrection, Christ inherited beatings, betrayal. He was lied about. Everyone rejected him. People mocked him. This is what Christ inherits. So again, this idea actually fits pretty neatly in this context of suffering on suffering on suffering. And when Paul says this goodness of God is that we get to participate in the adoption of of our adoption as sons and daughters or in the image of Christ, what should we expect? Suffering, just like our spiritual big brother, Christ. But this leads us to our next point, is that God's goodness strengthens our hope. Because is that all Christ inherited? Was it just sufferings? No. Paul goes on to explain how, where is Christ right now? Christ died and then he says, but rather he was raised and he's sitting at the right hand of God. And this leads us to this hope that God gives to us and his goodness offers us this hope. So if we go to Romans 8.30, we see this idea. We just continue on and it says, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also give him freely, Uh, freely give us all things. Who will bring charges against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one that condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died, but rather was raised. Who is at the right hand of God and who also intercedes for us? 
Now, this is remarkable. Not only did Christ's death on a cross, not only did Christ live the perfect life that we were supposed to live, but then he paid the penalty that we were supposed to live. But then what's more is he also now continues to live at the right hand of God so that he can intercede for us. But it doesn't stop there because the spirit also intercedes for us. If you remember with groanings too deep for words because we don't know how to pray. And so we have the spirit interceding for us. We have Christ interceding for us. And Paul makes this, this, this massive argument. What should we be scared of? Paul, in this context, and again, the whole context is suffering on suffering on suffering. And Paul says, when you're looking down the barrel of suffering, what are you scared of? What you should be scared of is falling into the hands of a wrathful God. That's what should terrify us. But we know that that's not our future Paul just made this claim that our future uh, instead is actually looking down the barrel of adoption. We're looking forward to becoming transformed and recreated into a son and a daughter of God. And so in light of that, what, what should we fear? Some temporary discomfort? He says, who, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer to that question is, everybody else can be against us, right? But that doesn't matter if God is for us. And he goes on to even further. He says, uh, he who didn't spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, uh, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And if he gave us his son already, what, el- what isn't available to us? And so, and then he goes on to make this argument, who brings charges against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. If God is the one that, that is the judge, right? Christ is the prosecutor and both of them are actually defending us. Who's left? The judge defends us. The prosecutor offers our defense. There's no one left to condemn us. And so he makes this argument and this is, where, this is where it strengthens our hope. The goodness of God to us, what it does is it strengthens our hope. We know that we can rest assured that we have a future hope. We have a future resurrection. We know this because it says the one who died, but rather was raised. If Christ was raised, so will we. And he sits at the right hand of God and he intercedes for us. And Paul, even prior to this, he even kind of alludes to this uh, before he gets there. So if we back up to verse 23, Paul says, and not only that, but we, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is already seen? But if we hope for what we do not see through perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. See how Paul sets this up. This whole conversation is about hope. We hope for this future resurrection. We hope for this new redeemed body. Why? Because Christ was resurrected. Because Christ received a resurrected body. Because Christ is a son of God. And so we too will be adopted as sons and daughters of God only in Christ. This is our hope. So that in light of persecutions, we don't have to fear the persecution. We don't have to fear the persecutor. We don't have to fear any kind of suffering that we may endure. 
And this isn't just necessarily fearing persecution, but this is also just the fear of letting ourselves go, isn't it? Sometimes the hardest thing in Christianity is just handing our lives over to God. Like I said earlier, these are fruit of the spirit. And when we find ourselves lacking, what we do is we say, I'm holding on to something that's preventing me from kindness. Take it. It does nothing for me. It produces no good fruit. That takes a lot of courage for us to continually crucify our flesh with Christ, doesn't it? And that feels like suffering, doesn't it? I don't want us to think or that we have some kind of cop-out because we live in a uh, kind of a privileged era where we live in America and we don't have to worry about being persecuted or we don't have to worry about this heavy, uh, uh, heavy persecution that other Christians might have to. But we do still suffer. We are still called to suffer, but it may be, look different. What it may look like is just handing over our comfortable lives to God. What it may look like is not being everything that we want us to be, but instead being everything that God wants us to be. And so it's this strengthens our hope, God's goodness. It strengthens our hope because we know what we're getting out of this deal. God is clear with us and he even gives us Christ as kind of a first fruit or as proof. And so we should be, we should have, um, we should be firm in our hope. And what that leads to is it, uh, it produces assurance. And this is our last point is that God's goodness toward us produces assurance. So again, hope is something that's not seen. It's not something that we actually uh, can get our fingers around. It's not something that we, can, uh, that we experience right now. But assurance is surety that the hope is going to come. So God's goodness toward us, it produces assurance. And Paul ends with this idea in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or trouble or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so we have this assurance that no matter what kind of persecution or trouble or tribulation or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, none of that is going to mean anything to us. And he says, as it is written, uh, for your sake, we were killed all day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But then in verse 37, he says, but in all things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. It's all these things. It's through all the sufferings. It's through all the troubles. It's through all of those things that we overwhelmingly conquer, which is interesting because he doesn't say all the good things either. It's the things that, are, that plague us, that dog us. Those are the things that we overwhelmingly conquer. Now this, uh, this word overwhelmingly conquer, it's actually pretty hard to translate. It seems like Paul may have made it up. Uh, we can't really find it in other uh, Greek texts, uh, like extra biblical texts either. Um, it's actually, uh, if you could just kind of like transliterate it, uh, it actually almost translates as, uh, as, as hyper uh, nikon, 
right? Or Hipponikon. Uh, if you know anything about uh, some of the Roman uh, gods, uh, the God of Nike was the God of conquer, right? He was the God of war. He was the God of, of victory, right? So Nike, if you know, the, uh, the sport wear, that's, uh, that's their whole idea, right? Nike, conquer, win. So hyper conquerors is this idea of someone that just so overwhelmingly defeats, uh, defeats their opponents. Someone that's just, the, the, the victory is just so decisive. It's just not even a game worth watching, right? That's this idea that's, but in all things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And what are we conquering? We're conquering tribulation or trouble or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. This is what we are overwhelmingly conquering. And again, this, this produces this assurance is because if, if we don't fear all this other stuff that the unsaved world should fear, and yet we don't fear it, this communicates something to an unsaved world, doesn't it? And so we can rest assured that the love of God and the goodness of God will come. Everything that we hope for, it is coming. And so we can look to all of these things and we know that we will overwhelmingly conquer. And that doesn't mean overwhelming conquering. That doesn't mean that you're comfortable through it. But what it means is that we go through it and it's in that that God uses it to produce good things. And what are those good, what are those good things? It's being shaped into the image of Christ. Remember that, that's the good thing. He works all things together for good. And what is that good? Being shaped into the image of Christ. It's adoption. What does tribulation, trouble, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, what does that produce? It shapes us into the children of God. So often when we look back at our lives and we ask ourselves, what good came out of that? The answer is, it doesn't matter. You're, you're looking forward to adoption. What if you don't ever get to know? What if you just experience adoption by the end of it and somehow it did work together for your adoption and you just never get to know? That's what God's goodness offers us is this assurance that we don't need to know all the, all the fine minutia and details. But what we can rest assured is that God is going to use it to produce good for those who love him and for those who are called. So this is what it looks like when God is good to us. This is God's goodness. This is his, uh, this is his moral excellence. This is what it looks like when he shows us his goodness and he demonstrates his goodness toward us. So what does that mean for us? If this is a fruit of the spirit and it's supposed to be produced in us and it's supposed to come out of us, what does this translate to? What does it actually look like in our lives? What should we be looking for? And so we can kind of modify this. What we talked about is it's God's goodness toward us. It produces assurance. It, uh, it, it strengthens our hope. It conforms us to the image of Christ. But now I want us to, to transition to God's goodness through us. What does that do? What does this fruit of the spirit produce through us? So God's goodness through us, it draws others towards Christ. So God's goodness toward us, it shapes us into the image of Christ, but God's goodness through us, it draws others to Christ. When this unsaved world, when they see how we conduct ourselves, when they see our goodness, they're drawn in. And it begs a question, who is this Christ? I thought I knew Jesus, but the way you behave is different than what I'd expect. 
So the goodness of God through us, it draws others toward Christ. And secondly, uh, God's goodness toward us, what it did is it strengthens our hope, but God's goodness through us, it offers hope to those around us. If you know anything about hope or if you've ever been in a, in a, like a, a terrifying situation where a lot of people are panicking, it really only takes one person to be calm, cool, and collected for everyone else to calm down, doesn't it? And this is kind of what we offer to this unsaved world. It's God's goodness through us. It offers hope to those around us. When we look at suffering, we look at trials, tribulations, famine, we don't panic because we have a hope. And when others see that hope, we can offer that hope to them. Hope is contagious in a way. And so it's God's goodness through us that we offer this hope that God has given to us. We offer that hope to those around us. And again, the intention is it draws them closer to Christ. Just like God's goodness toward us, it shapes us into the image of Christ. And then lastly, God's goodness toward us, it produces assurance. But God's goodness through us, it produces a steadfast faith. If we have assurance, what does this look like when it comes out of us? What does it actually tangibly look like? What boots the ground application of this? Well, if we have assurance, then we have a steadfast faith. We're not constantly questioning, what if I got this wrong? What if the world got this right? What if Paul missed this? What if Jesus missed this? What if, what if we could have done better than Moses? We start asking these questions and, and this is just evidence to the world that, that we're not really sure in our faith. We don't really know what we believe, do we? Now, what I don't want you here to hear me say is that we shouldn't ever uh, wonder what's going on, right? We should ask questions, right? We should be curious. And that's how we deepen our faith. That's how we work out our salvation. So yes, we should ask questions. But again, if we have assurance, if we have proof, if we have the resurrection, if we know that Christ was raised from the dead, and we can rest assured that Christ is going to raise us from the dead in the end as well. And we should have steadfast faith, even when we don't understand the good that he's working out. We still trust and we have faith that he's working it out for our good. He's working it out for our adoption. And so God's goodness through us, it does these three things. It draws others toward Christ. It offers hope to those around us and it produces steadfast faith. What I want us to focus on as we go throughout this week, I want us to remember the most important thing about this is that this goodness, this is a fruit of the spirit. Again, nothing that you can do. It's something that the spirit does in you. And what does that actually look like? It's, it's we should be asking ourselves, do we draw others toward Christ? Do we point others toward Christ? And if we, if we do find ourselves in situations where other people are repulsed, or they're driven away from Christ, we're probably doing something wrong, right? And again, we offer hope to those around us. Uh, I talked about this, if you remember uh, a few sermons ago, I I preached on hell, right? Um, Understanding hell is a very important part of evangelism, but just throwing hell in people's faces is just not productive. What is productive is offering them Christ, offering them hope, offering them a way out. We don't have to live like this. And this is, this is what God's goodness through us, it offers hope to those around us. It offers good news, the gospel to those around us. And it also produces steadfast faith. 
Again, this doesn't mean that we don't ask questions. It doesn't make, mean that we're just kind of brain dead or curiousness, right? So it, yes, be curious about your faith. Be curious about the scripture. Be curious about what God's doing in your life. But that doesn't mean that we should just reject everything because we don't understand something. In fact, we should want it that way, right? I remember someone told me that if God fits in your head, that's not a God worth worshiping, right? And so if God's doing something in us that we don't understand, that's appropriate. And that, that's where God's goodness in us, it produces a steadfast faith. We're still faithful to God. We're still faithful to this Christ that's redeeming us. We're still faithful to God that's shaping us in the image of his son and that's offering us adoption. Let's go ahead and pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.